works. There we go. How's it going? Good. How are you? Doing excellent. So uh, I'll just jump right into it. It's the EricSwanRacing.com podcast. I believe it's going to be 111 with Sophia Oberlander. So uh, thank you so much for coming on and talking to me for an hour or two. And I uh, just want to share your story and get to know you a little bit more. That one, 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 it's definitely synchronicity. I like that for me. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's cool to be in the triple digits and just talk to so many different people. Now, I've been trying not to overlap any one person within 12 months so that I get a variety right. of different people and not rely on one, you know, one individual. Um, yeah. So it's made me reach out to new people, and I met you at the track, actually, and you had already known about me. You've been watching some of my podcasts before, so that was really cool to uh, to meet an actual listener. Yeah. Yeah, that was really cool. I, I remember you, you challenged your name, and I was like, wait, are you? No, you're not. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I really so- loved your podcast with uh, with Billy Ball, and I've been watching since. I, um, I'm excited about the when they just came out with Electric Diet Images. It's on my list to watch. Um yeah. I'm sorry my dog decides to be a menace. He's usually very good, but he's there. Um no worries. <laughs> do you have do you have dogs or cats? I have a cat. Uh, I have a cat named Luna. I got her about two months ago. Um I used to at one point I had four cats. Um okay. I I didn't want a cat. My girlfriend at the time wanted a cat, so we compromised and got four cats. <laughs> Doesn't sound like much of a compromise. <laughs> So uh, I ended up starting to like them, and I just never had a cat before. I'd, I'd always wanted a dog, but my parents went the route of getting rabbits instead, so a little different. Um, so not the most cuddly creatures. They just kind of scurry away from you most of the time and poop everywhere. Yeah. But, um, it was kind of a different, unique experience. I also had fish growing up. I had a, a saltwater fish tank of my own that I had corals and uh, live rock and live sand and all that stuff, and even, uh, like, I had Nemo, you know, the the clownfish and all that stuff. Yeah. So, a lot of different animals, but never had a dog. I'd love to have a dog, but I'm gone too much. I'm at the racetrack almost every weekend. So I'd have to hire someone to watch my animal half the time. Yeah. We just started taking him to the track with us and it's been, it's been an experience. I've had several dogs, dogs all grown up. So I'm, I'm decent at training them, but it's, it's going to take a minute. He's still two, three years old. So definitely. Yeah puppy energy it's a lot to have me on track my partner on track and the dog so it's a lot <laughs> uh, tie him to the truck hope he doesn't escape right yeah and then he just sits and barks and whines and annoys everybody around us <laughs> so what is your uh training method do you go with the caesar milan type uh style i kind of like his methods of teaching uh dog training I copy a lot from Caesar Milan. Um, I really like Zach George. Um, I'm basically to have stolen all of his techniques. They're what I found works best for what I'm comfortable with and my dog in particular. And it's really just uh, a matter of he listens great at home all the time. It's when there's distractions out because he's kind of our pandemic dog. So I didn't get to socialize him as much. So he's still like really gets really excited with like new things and people and other dogs yeah that's understandable new environments are difficult yeah for sure um so yeah i got luna now she's a black i guess medium to long-haired cat and uh she's like one year old uh it's the first cat i've actually purchased every other cat i've had has been from the streets um we just accepted them in and you know made sure they weren't chipped or anything like that already got them chipped got them all their vaccinations and all the shots, but uh, there's a lot of casters roaming the streets. 
Yeah, they need homes. They need good homes, that's for sure. Yeah, definitely. So, um, so you come from the motorcycle world. That's why we're here today. So you were yep. um, a track day rider, sounds like, and uh, getting pretty low, getting uh, getting your knee out, getting your body position right. Sounds like you're uh, starting to learn some of the tricks of the trade. Yeah, I um, I, this is only my second season on track. I uh, started, I think late August of last year. So I got like maybe three or four track days in um, last season. And then uh, once this season rolled around, it's been absolutely gung-ho. Um, we ride pretty much every damn one that we can at Gingerman and Grattan. And then we uh, went up to ACC for the first time and rode the North Course. Um, I really enjoyed that track. We're trying to get down south for one come the winter time. Um, but We'll see what we end up doing. Yeah. Um, my boyfriend is actually a, I'm sorry, I'm going to butcher all the terminology, but he's like a novice racer for Wera. Okay. Um, I think that's what it is. It's a uh, novice advanced and then pro, right? Um, it, for track days, it usually goes novice, intermediate, advanced. And then for racing, yeah. for Wera, they have novice and then expert. And then from there, it would be professional uh, Moto America. Okay, got it. Um, yeah, so just the bottom one, um, he's done two races and he did really good this last one. So following in, in Billy's footsteps, we're trying. <laughs> he's, yeah, and he's, so he's got the yellow plates, he's a novice, but he's, uh, you know, it's different than being a novice track day guy. You're above advanced track day guy if you're a racer. Yeah, it's, it's intense. It's intense for me to watch. And unfortunately, I think I might've caught in the bug and be looking into getting a 400 to do some endurance races next next year we'll see yeah so what kind of bike are you uh is he riding and what kind of bike are you riding so i'm on a 2013 636 um it's kind of a special bike uh because one of the coaches at sport bike track time glenn he actually built the bike from scratch like right off the lot immediately zero miles yeah. turned it into a track bike so when i got it the 2013 i got it this season only had 1800 miles on it nice. um so it is a dialed bike. Um, it's fantastic. And then he's on, uh, he's been running R6s the entire time, but he's been through, I think, one R6 rebuild from his first crash of the season. And then uh, the second crash totaled. Um, and now he's on a different R6 that we got down in Ohio. So finally got that one dialed. Hopefully <laughs> it'll be okay. Yeah. Well, good. And so you're both in the middleweight class, the 600s. And uh, do you think that's a good place for people to start out? How has it been treating you? I, so honestly, I would recommend more people to start out on track on smaller bikes. I came from street riding for four years, I think. Four years, two of which, four or five years, two of which being like mainly just cruisers. And then mainly like a cruiser with a little bit of crotch rocket riding. I had an old CBR F4I uh, that I stunted badly. Uh, <laughs> Just some wheelies and, uh, and circle burnouts, stuff like that. Yeah, we actually ended up meeting the dude that bought my F4I uh, at ACC. He was there and he was like, he saw the on the back of my suit, I have wild wahine. And um, I had made, welded a uh, neuter bar for the old F4I with wild Wahine and it was driving him insane because he bought this sold out bike. He's like, what the hell is this? 
and he happened to see my suit and I was like oh funny coincidence yeah <laughs> um so yeah and then so after that I got in a really bad crash on the street right before I was supposed to go onto the track and that landed me with Francine uh <laughs> it's a uh, I I broke my spine and avulsed uh two or three nerves in my brachial plexus that's um funny. So it was pretty gnarly for about nine months. I couldn't move this arm at all. Like it would just hang there um, that I actually started to get some separation between like my collarbone and my humerus because the arm was just hanging. Um, and then I got spontaneous um, recuperation back in February of this year and have been going ham and training really hard and trying to build as much muscle as possible. And then I was supposed to get surgery to try to get some of the external rotation back um, earlier this month, but that got postponed. So hopefully end of September, I'll get that surgery and maybe they'll be able to get some nerve function back. We'll see. Yeah. Nerve, nerve pain and nerve damage is a scary thing. I had some nerve, uh, nerve damage in one of my crashes and uh, my entire left arm was numb. Same kind of mm -hmm. thing. And uh, I thought it was permanent. I, at first, I was like, oh, no, this is going to be permanent. This is a terrible thing. And uh, you do have nerve regeneration, but it's like one millimeter per year of growth. It's very, very small amounts. Yeah, it's, it's really slow, um, unfortunately. So I still have numbness. Um, the numbness itself should become, so there's the motor neurons and then the actual sensory nerves. Um, motor neurons is what we're trying to recuperate right now, but it's usually like a year to 18 months, really, if you're pushing it to do like any sort of intervention with those. And, um, once you miss that window motor neurons for like actual function, they'll, they'll really just die off and stop healing. Um, sensory nerves have, you know, two, three, four, five years to continue regenerating and continue growing back. So hopefully the numbness will go away eventually because I'd really love to be able to feel my whole throttle hand again. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. I'm sure that's a, a challenge for uh, riding on the track. I've had to do a lot of uh, hacking and maneuvering and weird things to make it work, but I make it work. <laughs> yeah. Modifying a little bit. Yeah, for sure. I just got um, a monkey grip that I'm really excited to try out. Um, so hopefully that's good. We're going to be at for this Fox day and then the counterclockwise weekends. Nice. So tell me about the monkey grip. What does that do for you? Um, it's just a tank extender. Basically it's like extends you back like that much. And then it has really wide because the Kawasaki tank, it's just, or at least the 2013 model, it's a lot higher and more narrow towards the back. So I find it hard, especially because I have like short legs. So I find it hard to get my outside anchor point sometimes. And it like messes up my upper body to really hook into it. So it just creates this extra little flare that I can literally just dig my leg up into. I haven't technically used it yet, but I've heard really great things from all of my friends who have them. So yeah, it's a, newer, it's a newer concept. I think it's a newer product, but mm -hmm. uh, I've seen many people use it and talk really good things about it. Um, I've been, uh, I just did coaching my first actual on track racing, uh, race coaching for a sport bike track time yesterday at Granton. Um, did you really? How was that? Yep. So I did, I was, the uh, the lead novice instructor. So I didn't teach the classroom, but I was the group one, uh, novice instructor. And nice. so there's like six or so different groups. We have maybe eight students per group. Um, and so the faster people for novice who, who raises their hand, who's been here before, you know, the fastest group. 
the fastest riders go up to the front and the slower riders uh, based on self-assessment and the, maybe they've never been to Grattan will go further back. Um, and so we give them all individual coaching. We do classroom sessions. We work on things like body position, your eyesight, your perception, your vision on track. Even we do drills like, uh, I'm sure you've been through it if you've taken the novice course for uh, sport bike track time. Um, we, we have a third or fourth gear drill depending on your motorcycle. Keep it in third or fourth gear the entire time. I chose third. And uh, on a 600, that's just plenty for, for Grand Raceway. Mm -hmm. And um, no brakes. So don't use your brakes at all. Just roll on, roll off, and coast into the corners and get back on the throttle once you cross that apex. And uh, people are so afraid of going off the racetrack, they don't realize that when you're turning, you automatically are scrubbing speed. Turning is effectively a brake without even touching the brakes because all motorcycles, all cars want to go straight. Anytime you're turning them, they're going to be slowing down. It's a Listen, it took me a while to learn that. <laughs> sure. So it's getting over your head of your, what they call your survival reactions, right? You're, oh, I'm going to crash. I'm, I'm going to start to panic. So I want to put on the brakes, but you can actually go into that corner like 40 miles an hour faster and still make it out the other side just fine. So it's about like lowering these barriers of, uh, of uh, er increasing your trust in the tire, your confidence, but lowering your, your fear. Um, is a big part of riding quickly and safely on a motorcycle. Yeah, I that's one of my big goals for Grattan this time around is to really haul it over the hump and don't fucking touch my brakes until after I tip in. Just leave them alone. I don't need them. Especially yeah. through the pains, you get the uphill. Like I can scrub all that speed. I don't need to. I just need the balls to push through it. Um, which again is like I'm on a six three six because I came from like sport bikes of that cc power range from the street so i think that i would just get pissed off if i went down to like a 400 or 300 racing's a different story but like track just getting my boots blown off every single time on the back straight so yeah. but i do think that if i hadn't come from you know 600 class sport bikes on the street i would have done so much better on a 400 because they're so they're so light they're so easy they're so much more forgiving like i would have so much more trust in the machine and in myself and my motor controls to like send it through a corner harder. At least I feel like I would. Yeah. And that's interesting that the lightweight bikes, the three, four hundreds, even the two fifties can go through the corners actually faster than the one thousands do. They weigh less, they have less mass. They can get through it faster. Now the one thousands are going to exit way quicker for sure, but they are taking different lines. So um, also on the lightweight bikes, you go through tires less quickly. Um, mm -hmm. you're going to have more longevity. You're not spinning up the rear as much. Um, your parts tend to last a little bit longer when you crash the parts, you don't have as, as many parts to replace. Uh, so there's a lot of benefits to it. Um, I would always recommend everybody start on a 400, but, uh, I started on a 600 at the racetrack. I rode a 250 for four years before even going to the racetrack. Um, so I think that's really good foundation, uh, to start with. You shouldn't be like maybe your first time ever riding a motorcycle at the racetrack. I mean, you could probably do it, but I wouldn't recommend it. You want to be like comfortable going on the highway first a couple of times, maybe a season or two, probably. But I've heard there's almost first time riders. It looks like they're first time riders anyways. You know, sometimes, sometimes it's uh, kind of scary looking. And I'm like, I wish I could have a headset and talk to you on the track because 20 minutes is way too long for you to be riding like that on the racetrack. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I hear that. It's a. Uh... Yeah, it's a, it's a toss up for sure. I mean, my um my buddy he went down at Gingerman this last uh, four day weekend that we had there, 
and um, his wife has been wanting to, they were both like riders on the road previous and she got her MSF and stuff, but then she had their kid. And so obviously she hadn't been riding for the last 16 years, but now she really wants to get on a bike and go do track with her husband. And I'm like, you know, send it, go for it. I mean, take the MSF course, take an advanced MSF course and then go, go, go be the slowest and novice. There's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> yeah. And, um, you know, everybody has different goals. Uh, when I went to the racetrack for the first time, I had no intentions of racing. That was not my goal. I just wanted to ride my bike the way it was designed in an environment that's the safest and, um, you know, predictable. So I didn't want to get in trouble with the law. And this is a great place to learn your skills. And uh, there's no minivans. There's no sand in the corners. You know, it's predictable. If there's a turtle that runs on the track, there's a flag marshal with a debris flag. You know, there's there's everybody's watching. Um, and you got multiple track marshals all around the track. They're for your safety. You know, helping helping you out, running out and picking up a bike if that needs to happen. Um, it's great to be uh, to use your bike in that environment. Well, and just the wealth of knowledge. Um, I definitely like have. I would not be as good of a rider as I am today without like several choice coaches taking time to work with me individually in between sessions, helping me in my track finder, scribbling down notes frantically, telling me around. Um, you know, that one-to-one, -one, like working with a coach and getting advice from different people, some of which didn't work for me at all, but some of which I am going to use for the rest of my riding career. Like it, fantastic advice. Um, Kenny White, great racer. Can't say enough great things about him. Awesome coach for SCT. Um, yeah, it's just SCT is, uh, obviously the only organization I've ever, uh, done track with. I'm not even sure what other ones there are, but can't say enough good things about them. Yeah, and you're from uh, Michigan, is that right? I'm I'm from Hawaii. Yeah, I lived on uh, Oahu for four years, and that's when I decided to get my first bike. And then I had a little moped when I lived on Maui previous to that. Um, and I kind of knew that I wanted a motorcycle in the future from riding around this little dingy moped. <laughs> yeah, and uh, where are you living now? I'm here in Michigan, um, Kalamazoo, uh, which we're pretty lucky, um, as far as I know, to be within like 45, 50 minutes of Gingerman and then like an hour 20 from Grattan. Like, that's great. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> I'm uh, two and a, about two and a half hours from each. And then same distance to Mid-Ohio. Autobahn's a little bit farther uh, in Joliet, Illinois. But um, they're all within a couple hours. And it's interesting to me you know, uh, trying to teach new people and, and, uh, educate the new generation of riders. Nobody knows where any racetracks are like that. You have to seek out this information. Uh, but I can think of at least six, maybe seven in Michigan. Um, there may be eight, but they're not all like sport bike racetracks. Like there's Granton, there's Gingerman. Are there really the only two sport bike tracks in the state that I know of? But there's tons of motocross tracks. There's ovals, or dirt ovals that they have races in. Um, there's uh, a couple of kart tracks. There's a couple supermoto tracks. Um, there's one in East Lansing. There's one in Flint. There's one in Jackson, Michigan. Um, they have um, smaller indoor kart tracks in Novi and Sterling Heights in my home city. Um, and uh, probably more motocross tracks than I could count. But unfortunately, I guess Granton's racetrack uh, their motocross track 
is going to be killed. It's it's done after this season. They're not uh, oh, no. gonna be, they're not going to be upkeeping it anymore. I'm not sure all the terms or why, but I I flagged for AMA District 14 a couple rounds ago at Grattan. They they kept saying, yeah, it's one of our last events here. I'm like, okay, well, why? I, I, they never explained the details, but um, I think it, it's just such a small turnout for the events that they're not going to be able to maintain it anymore. Yeah, that sucks. I that's also another aspiration I'd love to get out on dirt and learn how it feels to have the rear tire get super squirrely on me because I do not trust my tires nearly as much as I should. And I think a lot of my friends who have dirt experience, um, who grew up doing dirt bikes, that's why they're so much better a lot of the time is that they will spin out the rear and slide and be like, okay, well, I know kind of the boundaries of what I can do and what I can't do. Um, that sucks about the, I really wanted to do it at Grattan. Yeah. Um, so if you want to do it, I think there might be one or two more rounds left and then uh, maybe no more. Now, Grattan is for sale for anybody watching this. I think it's for sale for $7 million. So mm -hmm. uh, if anybody's got a couple of pennies in the bank they're not using, uh, it could go to a good cause. And that's a fantastic facility. They have uh, huge camping grounds. There's a motocross track that people say is one of the best in the country. And they talk the same way about the road course. Now, sure, some of the buildings could maybe be improved and uh, facilities upgraded, but there is room for growth. You know, there's room for opportunity. They used to have uh, Wera Nationals and endurance races at Gretton many, many years ago. So it's uh, one of the best tracks in the country as far as technicality. They always say, if you can ride Gretton, you can ride anywhere. It's, it's so blind. Uh, you don't know where you are until you're on top of it. You can't see because of all the crests and elevation and dips. So it's very difficult and off camber, on camber, a lot of uh, banked corners, which is unique. A lot of asphalt patches that get real slippery. <laughs> a lot of different patches, which is kind of helpful because you can pick out your reference points a little easier. I'm like, I'm breaking on that third sealer strip from the left, uh, you know, and you can kind of write yeah. these things down on your, on your track notes and reference them next time. Helpful till you're breaking right on a tire snake. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the sealer strip. But sometimes the fastest guys will say, you know, if it's really good conditions, if it's hot out here, that those sealer strips might have more grip than the pavement does. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, a lot of it's it's just funky the way that that track is. But like I said, it is one of the most challenging tracks in the country. And if you can do that one, you can do any of them. And it's slowly been growing on me. I was not a fan at the beginning of the season. And now I'm like very much looking forward to the three-day weekend that we're going to have there um and just getting better it, it is one of those tracks that will push you to be better it will give you no choice <laughs> yeah <laughs> you're going there at the end of the month is that the the 26 7 8 of august uh yeah it's a friday fox day regular direction clockwise and then both days after that are counterclockwise i actually really prefer it counterclockwise so i'm super stoked about that um it just opens up the track a lot more. You have a lot room, more room to see what you're doing and like where to go. And that's one of the things that I struggle with is like looking where I'm supposed to look properly. Um, so I'm super stoked. Um, and then that'll probably be the last ones that we're going to be able to do up here in the Northern circuit for this season. And then we'll figure out somewhere down South to go. Nice. Well, I'll, I will be there. Uh, I'll be there the 28th on that Sunday, the last day yes. of the three day weekend. So I'll be camping there, probably show up Sunday night and, you know, leave, uh, 
leave. I'll get there Saturday night, sleep the night there, wake up in the morning and leave the day of on Sunday. Perfect. Yeah, your setup was pretty minimal, if I remember. Yeah, it's not too bad. Just a little canopy. Well, actually, I think I was borrowing either your canopy or your generator that weekend that I was there with Billy. It was Billy's. Yeah, he left it with you so that we could tow. That was the weekend that Floyd totaled his bike. So <laughs> there was some shuffling going along. <laughs> so, but, yeah, I, mean, I appreciate you uh, helping me out with the transportation of uh, that stuff because I was just getting back into it, borrowing a bike. I didn't even own the motorcycle. Um, and so uh, I still actually got to pay the guy. Uh, my buddy Omar, um, I was not planning on buying this bike. And then I got an opportunity to coach for, for STT. I'm like, well, I guess I'm going to need the bike some more. So uh, I was like, I just can't keep borrowing it from him. So um, I stepped up and said, I'm going to buy it. So now we just got to do the transfer of the bill of sale and all that stuff and get it, get the cash payment over, over to him. So super happy that he lent me the bike. I just out of the blue that, Hey, I need a, a bike for this uh, race coaching tryout. And uh, that's why I went down to Virginia did the California Superbike School, and uh, I'm still waiting on the final yes, no, say so on uh, if I got the job or not. But I passed the writing portion. I passed the oral exam as far as like being able to speak about the material and um, not sound like an idiot, right? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> uh, it's cool. It's uh, like I said, I did my first ever coaching uh, yesterday at Grattan for a different organization, STT, and. It was so rewarding to see these little birds learn how to fly at the end of the day. And actually one of the guys uh, gave me a really good shout out online on Facebook. And he said, thank you so much for your, for your coaching. It, my, it made my riding night and day based on your one-on-one -on -one, you know, instruction. And that's really good to hear for me because I want to be telling you guys the right things. I want to be, you know, actually helping. And it's, it's cool to see that they're actually making, uh, making strides and progressing and uh, not just plateauing and uh, going faster and safer out there. Because I see when I was uh, going around, you know, it's easy to sit on the bike in the pit lane and do your body position drill and hang off the bike. And mm -hmm. this is how you look. Okay. Yeah. I'm going to do that on the track. And then I'm following different people and their, their butts not even moving a millimeter from turn to turn. And their, mm -hmm. their upper body might be three degrees tilted one way. I'm like, you got to get off the bike. Like uh, you got to put half of your butt off the seat completely. You got a really good separator in the middle. You know, it's a, um, it's a good indicator where you want to put your, your other cheek. And so mm -hmm. just instilling that and, you know, locking your elbow with your knee elbow in front of your knee kind of thing. And that body position, get your arms low. It's a night and day difference in your riding style. If versus, uh, you know, straight up and down, no lean angle with your body at all, and just stiff arm in the bike, the bike's not going to want to turn very well. Yeah, it's, and it's crazy how much, like, sometimes that feedback, like, you can hear it again and again, like, I've listened to the Ken Hill podcast twice over, and I still actively go back and listen to ones that I'm specifically struggling with, so, like, my brain knows the information, but it's so funny how, like, literally just this last weekend, it got, or at Gingerman, I had, like, another click of, like, oh, I knew that I should be doing this this whole time, but I was doing it completely different. And it's funny how I'm still like low grade, low pack intermediate, but it's definitely helped shoot me up a lot more as far as my ability to stay on the bike better, if that makes sense, or stay on the bike longer, I should say. Because I used to, I think that a good report card for me is that if it feels like it's supposed to be doing what it's doing under me. It should feel easy, 
not easy, but easier so that I can make it through a 20 minute session. And I used to be tapping out at like five laps. Like, can't, I'm exhausted. My legs are shaking. Can't do it. And that's always a good indicator to me of, Hey, you're probably trying too hard. Maybe you should relax a little. You're probably not doing this right. Yeah. Make sure you're breathing out there and it's not sustainable to ride with a white knuckle grip. You just can't do it for an extended period of time. So there's a way to ride without, you know, white knuckling it the whole time. And that's to drop your elbow. I like to point my elbow towards the ground and use the, the screwdriver grip because if you're doing it that way, your wrist is in a good position. You're not going to get arm pump because if it was kinked sideways, everybody's wrist is going to go numb. So you mm-hmm. have to kind of hold it with that screwdriver position or ice cream cone, as some people like to call it. And uh, if you're pointing your elbow towards the ground, you can't really put a lot of weight in your hands, right? It's in a position that you can't just uh, hold on very hard in this position. So you uh, using a lot of your core, a lot of your legs. And just like playing an instrument, learning a new sport, there's going to be some level of physical strength you need to have just to be able to do your sport effectively. Like uh, I've been teaching this MSF course for beginner riders getting their licenses. And they're all complaining to me, like my wrist is getting sore, my hands sore, using the clutch so much. They're not used to this, um, you know, your forearm being, being uh, worked so much. So yeah. one of the guys said, do I really have to keep putting it in neutral? Like, this is, this is a workout. I can't do this anymore. Can I take a break? Like it's supposed to feel sore. Like if you're not, if you haven't snowboarded in seven years, you go snowboarding, you're going to feel sore the next day. That's, that's normal. You've got to work those muscles, eat some protein when you go home. <laughs> yeah. A hundred percent. To be fair. Some of those MSF bikes have some really sticky clutches. <laughs> they do. They are not always the easiest. And sometimes I think it'd be a lot easier for these students to ride on perfect bikes. But I, we don't have a choice. You know, we only have a certain budget for these motorcycles. And uh, I, I just like to say, if you can ride this, you can ride anything. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, that's that's accurate. I'm curious here in Michigan, are you guys teaching um, in the MSF course? Because my MSF course, from what I hear from other people that did it here, I did it on Oahu. And they didn't teach me how to downshift. They didn't teach me what engine braking was. I was oh, literally yeah. for like an entire year, year and a half on my big ass Suzuki Boulevard, just like pulling in the clutch from like 50 miles an hour in fifth gear, pulling in the clutch and just braking. And then once I got to a complete stop, shift, shift, shift down to first for like a year because I didn't know any better. Yeah, you know what? That's kind of a good point. We do not that I know of have a specific engine braking drill um, mm-hmm. because a lot of the times we are teaching the, it's the basics, it's level one. So you got to teach them how to just ride the motorcycle without falling down before we can teach more advanced concepts. So it is a bit of a stepping stone process. Um, I will be getting trained to teach the advanced rider course in a couple of weeks here. That's why right. I'm not going to be able to do the Friday, Saturday. I can only do the Sunday at Grattan. Um, so yeah, there's a whole lot of holes that I see. Like I would want to teach them some more things, but we only have them for like four hours on Saturday, four hours on Sunday, and that's it. So we're teaching them the basics of clutch control, um, getting to the friction zone, and that takes up like half the day, you know? And then we're teaching them the swerve, a quick stop, getting them to brake harder, harder, harder on that front brake pressure and that skid that with that rear tire. Um so there's a lot of things that I w- wish we could add to the program, um, but we only have so much time and we're legally responsible for only teaching them what's in the curriculum. So right. if we try to teach them different concepts and they fall down, we are as coaches are liable for that. So it's like, 
and when I was first starting, um, I was trying to ad lib and add more stuff that I wanted to teach them. And as I was getting trained, the coach said, just read the cards. We have these cards in front of us that explain the entire drill and different tips and things about it. And I was like going off on different tangents. Like, just read the cards, read the freaking cards. Like, okay, I get it now. But yeah, this is, so what I always tell the students is you are now parking lot certified. We have not gotten out of second gear the whole time. This does not mean you should go on the freeway and go 85 miles an hour in traffic. Like come back, take another course, take the advanced rider course. Everybody is so always, they're always so anxious about the test. Am I going to pass? Am I going to fail? That's all they're worried about. They're not, they're not always focused on learning this concept perfectly. They're like, I just want to pass the test. You know, what do I need to pass the test? So if they come back and they've already had their endorsement, a lot of that pressure's off and they can really start focusing on their writing skills. Yeah. Yeah. I really wish that maybe either the original MSF course should be lengthened so that you can teach those more advanced concepts or that it's required that they take a more advanced MSF course. Cause I, yeah, like I said, I was writing without knowing how to engine break or knowing how to rev match or knowing how to anything, which like correct. You can ride a motorcycle without knowing those things, but like just for the longevity of the bike and like overall just understanding of the machine that's between your legs, you probably yeah. should know that. I, I could have saved myself quite a few crashes if I had a better understanding at the beginning of like, just how this machine operates and how it's supposed to operate. Yeah, that's a good point. I love the feedback. That's a great point because, uh, yeah, that's, there's definitely some holes that I see, but um, I've found in their, in their teachings in the state of Michigan, it depends on the year, but the, the, the how do you say it? 30 to 50% of the fatalities of riders in Michigan are unlicensed riders. So yep. if they at least get licensed, and it's not even about the state requirement. It's about you learning how to ride the motorcycle. It's not mm -hmm. about paying the fee. It's like, do you actually know how to ride it at a basic level? Can you do a swerve? Can you operate the brakes effectively, you know, to get out of that car, that Volvo that just stopped right in front of you? You know, mm -hmm. all these different situations that you're not expecting. You're staring down at your, at your hand controls the whole time because you don't know how to use the clutch. The car just broke in front of you. You're going to probably end up in the back of that car. You know, so keeping your head up, looking where you're going, turning your head for blind corners that there's a big tree there. You can't see the end of it. You better be turning your head, not looking two feet in front of you, in front of your tire, you know. So it's good for at least the basic level of riding. Like you can ride around a parking lot and things like that, but it is not um, like high level, high speed environment training at all. Yeah. Yeah. I like that parking lot certified. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I have... I had quite a few guys in my MSF course that had been out riding on because the law is different here. I think in Michigan, in Michigan, you, if you have your endorsement, you can ride with a, another licensed rider. Is that right? Yeah. Um, in uh, Hawaii, you, uh, as long as you have your endorsement, you can ride. Um, so like we had people coming to the MSF course because you couldn't take the MSF course without having your endorsement already. Okay. Um, so they would come with their endorsement on their own motorcycles and they would be allowed to like ride and practice on their own motorcycles that they rode to the MSF course with, and they've been riding for years on this endorsement or whatever, and just wanted the actual license finally. And they came in with like really big heads and like, I know what I'm doing and then dump their shit at the first U-turn. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, you know, it's uh, it's easier to teach someone who knows nothing than someone who's been riding for 10 years and thinks they know everything because yeah. they've been all these bad habits and they think they know what they're doing. And at first you're like, okay, this probably guy probably knows how to ride. And then you get to the U-turn box, like he can probably, he can operate a clutch, but he doesn't know how to ride. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I'm still in it. It's different levels because like you said, you can't throw everything at beginners all at once. So like now in intermediate, I'm still like unlearning bad habits, bad habits that were taught to me in novice to keep me safe, to keep right, me yeah. crashing. But like, if I want to progress, I now have to like edit that out of my brain and learn new information. It's by yeah. far the most like evolution of a sport that I've ever had to do. <laughs> yeah. And it's interesting because the, I will say a hundred times that things you learn at level one MSF course do not apply when you're an expert racer. Like yeah. they're, they're totally different. So um, you just have to take it with a grain of salt and learn and be able to learn and adapt and evolve with your riding style. Cause we do teach you different things. Like you shouldn't be trailer breaking too much in novice because you're probably going to tuck the front. You're yeah. not going to be smooth with your controls. You're going to be all grabby stabby at full lean and, Oh, I don't know why I crashed. Well, that's because you grabbed the front brake when you're leaned over, you know? So we, we teach use minimal brakes. We coast around the corners, you know, we're not even using the brakes half the time, but we're focusing on everything else so that when we get faster, we can start putting those puzzle pieces together and form it into one lap. I'm gonna make a petition to have the first seven videos of Ken Hill's fundamentals as a part of the MSF curriculum. <laughs> That'd be great. You know, like we always say, this is not your end of your learning. This is level one out of like level a thousand or more. So just keep learning. If you wanna get better at the sport, you always gotta keep learning. And you know, some advice from some coaches, I'm sure, is not always the best. I'm sure, um, you know, some, some information that they give is great and it might apply to you at different times. So, um, you know, just, just learn and try to be a sponge. Yeah. And that's the other great thing about STT too, is that you have so many different coaches available to you, especially in novice that, you know, if something that one guy says to you just doesn't make sense, you can go to someone else and be like, this is my problem. I asked for help here, but I, it didn't really make sense. And I try to get a toe from you. Like there's a lot of people there and everyone's willing to help. Yeah. It's it's a great, and we're all volunteering too. It's uh, mm -hmm. all a volunteer gig. So uh, it's not like we're making tons of money off of coaching. It's just, we love doing it and helping other riders get better. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's one day I would love to, it's, I need to get a lot better myself. First. Maybe in 10 years you could, uh, you could do it. You know, there's a coach level for every rider too. Um, there's a woman red spade who I have podcasted with and she's a huge social media person. She's a uh, Anna Rigby. You know, she's always out there promoting the sport of riding. And uh, I'm pretty sure she's a coach too, but she's like coaching other riders of a different level. So there's right. all sorts of levels of coaches. They don't always have to be professional riders, but it's just somebody who's maybe a couple of years ahead of you who can give you that real world feedback. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's always nice to have someone that's also like not so far ahead of you for your skill level to give you advice too, because they, they're a little bit closer in distance. So they can kind of remember a little bit better where what, what it felt like to be like where you are. And yeah. have a little bit more to say that way. <laughs> sure, it's maybe more relatable to you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, hundred percent. So uh, I know something else that you uh, really wanted to talk about, and I do as well, is uh, 
human rights and what's been going on in our uh, in our system lately with uh, the regards to abortion and uh, pro-choice and pro-life and all that. And uh, I'll just say right out, I am atheist. I am not Christian. I don't have any religion. Um, I think that there's maybe something that we don't quite understand that I can't put words to, but I don't believe in the typical, um, you know, the preachings that stuff's been written down and been changed thousands of times throughout history. I don't think that's divine. Um, and uh, I think there's a lot of uh, Christianity or religious views in the political system now. And I thought it was supposed to be a separation of church and state. So like, I don't care what your religion is. You have your own beliefs. That's fine. But um, keep it out of my rights is my idea. Yeah, that's I'm 100% on the same page. Um, I have friends in several different countries across the world um, that are kind of looking at America right now, like, why the hell are laws being made around certain people's religions? Um, that's not what anybody signed up for. Um, and especially like laws being made by generally individuals over the age of 60 which already you're looking at a lot of mental decline. I'm really big into neuroscience. I'm really big into how you're taking care of yourself. There's a lot of evidence that a lot of people up into the upper range that were alive 60, 70 years ago have a lot of lead poisoning. There's a lot of new uh, evidence coming out to support that. Um, oh, brain damage, so, basically. Yeah, and, and then they're all men, 80% or something stupid like that of our, our state heads are men. Um, and a lot of them are white. And I think that it's a huge issue. And I think that we're just going to continue to see this backsliding. There was already a case. There's already been so many cases. I can't, I have to separate myself a little bit of keeping track of everything. Otherwise I will go ballistic. Um, I'm just trying to do everything that I possibly can from my scope without driving myself absolutely insane over things that I can't control. So what I can control is reaching out to my local writing community, um, KZURC, we're North or Southwest Michigan, basically. Um, so I just recently did a pro-choice fundraiser. We raised about $300 that got donated, um, planning on doing another one. We're going to be making merch. Like, I think that speaking with our money is going to be, cause it's capitalist America. Right. So I think that the dollars and where we spend our money is going to have the biggest impact on anything changing but there's also a part of me that just wants to flee this country <laughs> yeah we well, gotta always vote with your wallet whether it's a restaurant you like or different <laughs> political views you know uh, put your money where your mouth is mm -hmm. yeah a hundred percent and it's just really heartbreaking to see other women that i'm privileged enough that i'm in a space where i can i have access to birth control and i have access to healthcare for now so it doesn't affect me, but there are millions of women who don't have that access, who've never had that access. And what are they supposed to do? They're just fucked. Like yeah. it's, it's disgusting. And it's very, I don't know. I was out there protesting, just me standing on top of my big ass B star out downtown Michigan. Um, and there were people walking by this one dude stopped and tried to start an argument with me. And I'm just like, why does this affect you? If you don't have a vagina, I don't know why you care. I don't know why you care, my guy. Like, I, this does not affect you at all. Yeah. Um, 
But at the end of that, you know, a, a girl came up to me in tears, thanking me for being out there for protesting. And if I made her feel slightly less alone in any way possible, then that's worth it. That's all the initiative that I'm trying to accomplish. And that's enough. So, yeah. and it's like, for me, we, I remember having debates or discussions in, in the classroom in high school, like in uh, like English class, like uh, debate about this, right? Your stance pro or against and why and explain your viewpoint. And you have to be able to, to argue both sides, right? To, to have an intelligent conversation about the thing. And uh, I thought this problem had been solved decades ago. Like, why are we bringing this back up now? Like people should have the right to choose what they wanna do with their bodies. And uh, I don't have a vagina, you know, but I think women should have the right to choose. And uh, if someone doesn't want to have a child, they should not have that child because we've seen all the bad things that happen when, um, when dads leave or moms leave out of a family, that kid has a really rough time. Maybe both parents don't want the child and then it's going to be in adoption centers and foster care. And that's not a good situation either. So it's like these these um, these people maybe come from poorer households who cannot afford a child and you're forcing them to have a child. They're going to try to have an abortion anyways uh, and do it through bad means, whether it's, you know, coat hangers or whatever, going to other states or traveling to other countries to get these things done. Um, it's it's not going to go away. It's just going to be done behind medical door, like outside of medical doors and outside of the the safety of um, medicine and doctors. Yep, and then you have a, a dead fetus and a dead young woman. Um, so really you have accomplished nothing. And like like what you said, it's never going to affect um, people with means, people that are rich. Um, this doesn't affect them at all. They're gonna get on their jets, they're gonna get in their fancy cars and go to another country, um, another country with some actual sense where they can get the healthcare. Because really, there is no other country. I can't think of. I think fucking Afghanistan even has legalized. Yeah. So it's it's disgusting at this point. And if we flip it on its head, if we were trying to make these laws about men, this would not be happening. This would not be happening. There would not be a law. It makes so much more sense to require men to get vasectomies or something that are easily reversible at the age of puberty. But like that's not even on the table. Nobody is even offering that because we live in a patriarchy. So it makes a lot of sense that we're again back to putting women in bulletproof vests and just shooting them up instead of actually dealing with the problem. Yeah. Um, and like I come from a household where I was not wanted. I've experienced homelessness in my youth. I would have loved to not have had that experience if. Uh, my biological parents have had access to the things that they needed. Um, luckily, I have great foster parents that stepped up and do the job. But I, again, am so fucking lucky and privileged to be in the situation that I'm in now. And there's so many other people that just luck of the draw didn't get lucky. Like absolutely no, nothing to do with me personally and my values and who I am and me being better than anybody else has anything to do. It was literally just a poker draw, like luck. And that's, icky to me all the way around there's so many people who get uh who slip through the cracks and don't get that uh that foster care that they need mm -hmm. yeah and there's and that the same thing goes for like you know i'm lucky that i'm able to walk away from my injury having health care 
too, because I've seen the healthcare bills over $50,000 for a couple nights in the hospital and a few CTs, really? Because they haven't done surgery. They haven't done anything yet. It's been a year of it's like, that's insane. And like, what would happen if I didn't have health insurance? You'd be bankrupt. I'd be literally bankrupt. Absolutely screwed. Um, And, you know, they say that that's why Gen Z is, it's record, record lows for mental health. And they're saying that a really big link to that is that they're also have skyrocket credit card debt way more than any other generation at their age. Um, And the interest rates are also way worse. And we're about to tiptoe into a recession. So good luck, Gen Z. I'm a cusper technically, but I don't necessarily think of myself as Gen Z. So what is the cutoff for Gen Z? I'm not sure what the age groupings are anymore. So I'm 97 and I think I'm like right there on the end of millennial. It's like right there, 96, 97. So they're calling us cuspers, but I'm more of a millennial than I am a Gen Z. Um, but like right there. So, you know, you know, you're 1999, 2000 babies onward okay. um, that are now, you know, 22 year old adults that are trying to make it in this economy when gas was like $5 a gallon a few months ago and <laughs> groceries keep going up. And I spent 20 bucks on a bottle of kimchi and two cucumbers earlier at the grocery store. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I went to the restaurant the other day, got some Thai food and it said every, every item on the menu is at least a dollar more. Yep. Didn't even change the menu. Just put another dollar on everything. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's only going to get worse until we can figure out where to go from here. I get it. COVID, nobody saw it coming, but also there's going to be more pandemics as shit keeps melting and coming down. I know we have that monkeypox thing going around right now. I, so I heard on the, I heard on some, uh, I don't know if it was the news or social media, um, but um, apparently it's like 95% gay men are getting uh, monkeypox. Yeah. I think that the media is really homophobic and like loves to spread stuff like that, but there's nothing inherent about monkey box. Like it's the same thing with like coronavirus. It's not inherent to Chinese people. It just started in China. So like the fact that it started in the gay community doesn't really have anything to do with how it's spread. It's not spread by giving a blow job. It's spread by touching something. That's it. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. I'm just uh, spewing false information, I guess. (laughs) <laughs> no, I mean, it's fine. Um, nobody knows, I don't think anymore, especially with all the false narratives out there. I just don't enjoy any sort of narratives that are like, oh, it's those people's fault. Generally, when there's any generalizations, as I just did a generalization <laughs> uh, involved, I don't like it. <laughs> yeah, I was saying the other day, I got some um, some bad advice on directions from an Asian woman. I was like, why did I ask an Asian woman for directions? I was like, well, that's probably a generalization, but it's kind of like, it comes from a a reason, right? Because many times something has happened and you've maybe had bad directions from a woman or an Asian person. So that's huge generalization. But in that one instance, it was true. (laughs) Yeah, and there's there's nothing saying that generalizations can't ever be true. Uh, It's just the fact that when you apply it to everyone in that category, I I run into that a lot, both in the street writing community and at the tracks. I'm a woman 
I have boobs. So that means I can't operate a motorcycle as good as all the dick swingers around me. So, and a lot of my fellow female riders also feel the same way that there's like a constant kind of buzzing in the background. It's like, ah, you're not really as good as the rest of us. And I'll throw out the obligatory, not all men. It's not all men. Nobody can torch me now. <laughs> um, but it is, it is still present um, in a really big way, uh, especially at the racetrack, unfortunately, just because that is more of a sport where you have to perform. It's a performance sport. We're all there to get better. We're street riding. People are kind of putzing about whatever. I don't deal with it nearly as much um, street riding, especially because not to toot my own horn, but I'm probably better than your average street rider at this point, having been to the track, having made intermediate, knowing what I know about motorcycles, doing all the work that I have, your average street rider doesn't put in that much effort. Um, so I feel like I'm more on a, on a, on a different level. Um, but yeah, it's, it's ever present. And hopefully if enough women speak up about it and honestly, we just need to get more women at track. Um, I've recruited one, two, three separate women uh, to join. And then two more of my other friends decided to join all this season that are all women getting out on the track, doing the thing. I don't care. Bring your cruiser. Just come out here and show face. Um, and, you know, I've heard it from coaches time and time again that women tend to learn slightly slower than the men and they tend to crash a hell of a lot less and they <laughs> they tend to retain information a hell of a lot better they're better um, listeners yeah i think a lot of the time um and it's because the ego isn't there for a lot of women um i mean kit um she's amazing i'm not sure have you met her kit uh maybe i thought i saw her the other day or at the track did she come yeah, she's got like really long brown, super curly hair like mine. Yeah. Um, and she's a I don't think she's a coach. She's an advanced writer and she's um staff. Um, if I'm wrong, she'll kill me. So hopefully I'm not wrong. <laughs> but she she organized um the STT All Girls Day, and that was one of the most fantastic experiences I'd ever had. It was actually at Audubon. Um and everything just went so smoothly. There were multiple crashes because it got rained out, like literally pouring rain. Um, and everybody was still there to help each other out. Um, just the vibes were immaculate. Um, and I would love it if I could take that entire group of women and take them to every track day with me. Yeah, the band of women on the track. It's awesome to see. I've been beat by a woman, Ann Roberts, at the Road Atlanta uh, many years ago at the at the Wera Nationals Cycle Jam. And uh, I thought it was awesome. I'm like, that's great. You know, I, I would love to be in front of any competitor, man or woman, but uh, mm -hmm. I want to see more women out there. I'm not um, ashamed to say that I be, got beat by a woman. Uh, I think it's great. More women should be out there. And it's not a sport that determine or is uh, determined by how strong you are. Mm -hmm. Yes, you should have a basic level of fitness. You should be working out all the time, really, to be a motorcycle rider, man or woman. But my point is, you don't need to be a bodybuilder. You don't have, need to have extreme brute strength. You see the guys who are excelling, like Danny Pedrosa's of the world, who are like 5'2", 5'3", Jason DeSalvo, 5'3", you know, 130 pounds. That means if a woman is the same dimension, she can compete at a, at a good level. 
um, I think writing is like 90% mental. So if you can overcome those roadblocks and you can put your body in the right position and like hold it there for a little while, it's really a lot about your mind and how it's working. So get all the women out to the track. I'm looking for a girlfriend, someone who rides hopefully. So, um, no, I'm always looking for someone who's fit, someone who can, you know, not necessarily keep up at my pace, but at least keep up, come onto the track, maybe go for a mountain bike ride, something like that. Someone who's in the active lifestyle. Yeah, it's uh, it's one of the most amazing experiences ever to be able to be in this sport actively with my partner. Um, we started both in novice together. He progressed faster than me, obviously. Broken arms tend to do that. Um, but it's really cool to actively have someone to go to track with, to break down the track date afterwards, to work with each other, to see progress happening, to trailer with, like, it's just a fantastic experience. And I think that more, more couples should do it together. Honestly, I see a lot of, a lot of wives. I've talked to a lot of wives and girlfriends that are like, yeah, it's super cool. It looks super interesting, but I don't know. I would love to, but I don't think I can. And I'm like, yes, you fucking can. <laughs> yeah. And back to what you said about uh, your skill level, I would say if you've been on the track, even as a novice for one day, you're better than 99% of the riders on the street. Yeah. Kenny has says similar things of the riding population is like in general is 1% of the population and track riders are 1% of that population racers are another one percent of that population i always say that i'm one percent of the one percent of the one percent because i think one percent of track riders are women at least it feels that way a lot of the time very small amount yeah for sure it's uh there's a handful but uh there's a handful at each event which is cool now you're seeing more and more women get into it yeah i am seeing a lot more and especially like women like uh my, my girlfriend Paige. she goes completely by herself she has her own big ass truck and her own trailer and she knows how to drive the damn thing and she knows how to ride a bike really well um she's lined up for her intermediate bump coming up here and she's just fantastic and it's it's women like that that are like i can do the damn thing by myself yeah it's inspiring <laughs> i don't need your help i can set up my canopy i can unload it myself i can load it back i can even change a sprocket you know whatever yeah, yeah. it's and that's that's the type of i think that every woman is capable of that but it's again like a mindset thing of years and years and years of socialization of like oh i couldn't do that yes you can well it's <laughs> difficult to like people always ask me how well how'd you even get started because it's like it's such a mystery like how do you even go to the track where is the track what do i need for the track how do can i ride my bike to the track do i need a trailer do i need a truck like it's such a mystery for people so I'm trying to help dispel that and make it easy for people to find this information. I did just make a, um, like a guest, what did I call it? Like a directory for new motorcycle riders or any rider. Like these are the brake pads that I use. These are the brake pads that I sell. These are the brake pads I recommend. These are the brake pads I have sponsored by, uh, so who have sponsored me. Um, there's tons of different brands out there. Like you, it's not one specific brand that's your best one or that I've one that I recommend. I've, I've used multiple brands. Um, and so it's not like, I'm just trying to sell you something like I'm trying to give you the information to help you find, you make your best decision based on your skill level, based on what you need. Um, here's a whole bunch of different track organizations. Here's some racing organizations. Um, you know, here's where I bought my trailer. I went to Harbor Freight and just built it myself, you know, stick a piece of wood on there, mount a couple ramps to the side, mount a gas can. 
mount the box in the front tongue box, and that's my tooler, my toolbox now. You can just pick up your toolbox, put it right in there, close the lid, good to go. Um, you know, I'm a huge proponent of the Pitbull trailer restraint because you don't need any tie downs. Just mount the base to your to your open trailer. And uh, I do have a front chalk in the in the for the front tire so that I can kind of put it in and mess with the rear. But you really don't even need the front chalk. You can just do it with the rear Pitbull restraint. No tie downs. I can load it in like 12 seconds. I was, uh, some of my riders that I was helping were asking if I needed help loading my bikes. I was like, sure, watch this. I loaded it in 12 seconds. They're like, oh, I guess he doesn't need any help. <laughs> yep, that's, that's what we run as well. Um, and they're super great too, especially if you like wreck your bike because then you can just take it home in one piece and it just goes right through the axle. So there you go. <laughs> yep. Unless you've separated the front from the rear of the motorcycle, then it's in two pieces. Yeah, we <laughs> try not to do that. Aim for low sides. If you're going to crash, please low side. Although yeah. I have seen some nasty low sides for some reason this year. I keep telling people, take their freaking frame sliders off. It's yeah, because when it catches, it, it'll flip. Yeah, and that, I've seen that happen way too many times. I'm like, it, it'll slide great on the pavement, but you got to worry about when it gets to the grass or the gravel, dude. Um, but, I mean, that's another great thing about the motorcycle community. We're re-helping our buddy build his bike that went down at Gingerman. So happened to have a bunch of spare R6 parts because R6 parts are a plenty. Yeah. Um, and, you know, he's going to be able to get up and run for Grattan at the end of this month, which I don't know of any other sport where there's this much community. Um, and that's like a really big part of why I love it so much and why there are so many awesome people. Um, and to piggyback off what you were saying, I, yeah, I didn't know shit about track either. Billy Ball had been uh, yelling at our entire KZRC motorcycle group to get to the track for years. Um, and finally, I think we just listened to him and decided to give it a try. Uh, but I watched one of the Revzilla videos of like how to do track. <laughs> and it seemed very straightforward until you actually do it and you get there and you realize that there's a lot of shit that they didn't cover in the five minute video. Um, so the easiest way to get to the track is uh, if, if you don't even have a bike, I would recommend just go to your local track day without even planning on riding first. Just go to your local track. It might be 15, 20 bucks to get in for a gate fee. There's no will call. You don't buy a ticket at your local track unless it's a professional event. But if it's a WERA event, a CCS, ASRA, ARMA, uh, track day, STT, or N2 track days, any of those organizations, it's pretty much a gate fee. You get in and there's no VIP section. It's all open. You can go around and talk to each individual person you want. I would just say don't talk to them four minutes before they're trying to get on the racetrack. You know, if they're ready to go out for a hot session, um, come back when they're, you know, got their helmet off, ready to talk and got some water. Um, but yeah, you can go around, pick their brain, see what bikes they're running, see what kind of tire warmers they have, see their setups or canopies. You don't even need any of that stuff. You know, you can go to the, go to the tracks and most tracks have garages that you can rent for 60, 80, hundred bucks, depending on the track. And, uh, you have power hookup for warmers, a fan, maybe, uh, electronics, charging, whatever you have. And you got free shade with the garage, which is nice. Uh, you don't have to bring a canopy or a generator in that instance. So uh, yeah, just come to a track, check it out, see what it's about. And uh, you'll make friends. You know, a lot of people are just hanging out. Um, maybe at certain events, it's like, I. my parents asked me, who did you know at this event? I'm like, I knew like 14 people there. 
Um, and like three people knew me and I didn't know them. You know, that's pretty cool. Um, just like when we met, you knew me. I didn't know you before, but now we're pretty much friends. Now we're having this podcast. So it's cool. I just met a couple new people and uh, make some new friends. So every time I go, I just walk from like canopy to canopy, introduce myself, say, how you doing? You know, this is what I'm doing here. And if you need anything, come by my pits. Sometimes I have spare parts. You know, I have, I hang my uh, Eric Swan racing banners so people know that I'm a business and I sell parts and things, but I don't really have parts to sell at the track. Everything, you know, ships from warehouses around the country. Mm -hmm. I don't have a huge inventory on hand with me. So, uh, but I, one, one guy said, oh, my grips are feeling really bad. Do you have any grips for sale? I'm like, actually, I do have a whole bunch of spare parts. So let me look at my toolbox, you know, and uh, I sold them some grips that were just my personal spare parts. So I'm like, well, I just, I hope I don't crash and need those grips later. <laughs> yeah, it's, it, it's awesome. And a hundred percent, just go to the track. Um, my buddy came to watch just to spectate at Gingerman, but he happened to ride his bike, um, his R6 to the track and after it went cold, he was just kind of hanging out with us. And uh, one of the coordinators came up and was like, this is your bike? How come you're not riding track? Um, one thing led to the next and we ended up getting him out on track the next day with a borrowed suit from that guy, borrowed uh, gauntlets. I think he rode his helmet, got him out there on sketchy street tires, but they were good enough to pass tech. Um, swapped some coolant in, I think, for engine ice and, you know, got him out there the next day just because he was there hanging out with us. and you know, everybody at the track wants to see everybody on a motorcycle on the track. Right. That's it doesn't matter how old you are. I think you can maybe start at sometimes 12 to 14 years old. And 11 at STT. 11, is it? It's insane. <laughs> I mean, there are children out there. They're not even teenagers, but um, I've seen, I've rode with young kids and before they have a driver's license, they can still be very predictable and safe. And I'm like, this kid pro should probably have a driver's license by now. He's an ex he's an expert level racer at like teenager level um, before 16. It's like, why why we have the 16 year old uh, age group? But it's like these kids, if you learn that the track, you learn it's it's very serious. It's not a joke. You can get injured, killed, maimed, lose limbs, and die. Mm -hmm. But if you do it in a safe way, it's repeatable. It's not like you're, we're out there risking our lives every corner. I mean, we all understand the risks, but there's a safe way to do it. And there's an unsafe way to do it. And we teach you those things. And one of the most dangerous part about a racetrack is always the entrance and the exit from pit lane. So as long as you are safe with your um, track out and pitting in, most of the rest of it is way safer. There's those two zones Imagine you have someone coming from zero miles an hour entering the track, typically on a straightaway, where you're passing them at 120, 130 miles an hour. So those speed differences is where we have the biggest problems. But as that's long as we have blend lines, that's why we have blend lines. And Grattan is very unique. We don't use a straightaway most of the time for entering and exiting. That's only for like race weekends when mm. we're everybody knows what's going on. Nobody's violating those blend line rules. We all understand the severity of those incidents. So. Uh, at Grattan, we enter between turn four and five, and we exit at turn three, which is unique. I don't know another track like that. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I've only obviously ridden the three, but it's it's interesting for sure. Um, it's hard for me to remember uh, pit out. Um, obviously, the rules are, you know, if you don't have your hand up by a certain time, you're going around again. 
there's yep. several times when I first go out the first session, I'm, I'm trying to pit or whatever. Um, and I forget to have my hand up by a certain corner because I'm coming into one so hot and I'm like, Oh, I really got one. And then I see two coming up and I was like, Oh shit, I was supposed to have my hand up. I wanted to go out. Um, and then I'm like, well, I guess we're doing another lap and then I'll do the exact same thing the next time. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it is, it is, it's good that they, nail those rules into your head as, as well as they do with STT. Um, I think that that, that works amazingly. And like, I, I see these kids out there, the, the last, uh, wear race weekend that we did, uh, at grad, this freaking 12 year old kid was on a, a Kramer. I'd never even heard of it. It's a freaking single cylinder, 690. Okay. Holy fuck, dude. This kid won his race, like against like six other racers, like just absolutely hauling and like super humble, came up, got his tro trophy, like brought his little sister up. Like it was the coolest thing ever. And I, I kept having to stop myself from, from going up to their dads and being like, I wish I had a dad to do that for me when I was that young. Like, will you adopt me? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's just, it's so cool to see like, the sport that's why i know like ken hill rats rattles on a lot about it about how he thinks the sport is dying which i think there are aspects of the sport that we definitely need to pay attention to um but i see stuff like that and i'm like oh dude this, this is never gonna die like everybody is so supportive and so appreciative and like everybody's just there to help each other out um and everybody wants to see everybody else succeed at least from what i've encountered i haven't encountered a bad apple yet um and yeah it's just the community is unlike any other sport that you're gonna have out there well i think it's because we respect each other so much we had this massive common interest and as a racer even if my competitor crashed i've given i've lent parts and given parts to people for the weekend like hey you need a steering damper i got a spare mm -hmm. just to, and they might be in my same class in my same expert level, I want them to be out there and I want to try to beat them on track rather than beat them because they couldn't get out of pit lane. So unlike soccer where, you know, I'm going to try to beat my teammate. I mean, you're always trying to, you know, be your best, but um, in soccer, everybody's competing against themselves and you don't really care about your teammates as much. Sometimes, you know, I played soccer for like a dozen years and you're always trying to be the best guy out there. So your po coach puts you in that ideal position, right? Um, and that's the same can be true about motorcycle racing, but it's just such a, a higher level of respect because there's more danger involved, I think. Yeah. And it's crazy how much it teaches you your limits, um, especially being in I now, um, and I'm still a little I baby. Um, but I remember when I first got out there, my very first session, very first lap in I is that Gingerman we hauled out of there. I was going a little slow because it's, the first lap I'm running Q3 plus. I wasn't running warmers at all at that point. Um, so I always take a warm up lap and I guess the dude behind me maybe knew I was newer or something and came hauling around me between two and three and just absolutely grabbed the brakes into three, trying to beat me on the brakes and low sided right in front of me. And I was like, okay, great introduction. There we go. Uh, awesome. And like that immediately teaches me, like there's, there's so many times where you just have to execute patience. Like, yeah, you want to go fast and you want to pass, but like also don't do that. And also the trust in, in the other rider, like I've had uh, an intermediate, still six feet inside, outside, whatever, but it's six feet. Um, and I've had 
wheels coming up on the outside of me in the sweeper or whatever. And I'm like seeing a wheel and I'm like, Oh God, here we go. They're like three feet away from me, two feet away from me. I'm like, Oh shit, look where you want to go. And then I see the orange vest and I see it's a coach. And then immediately relieved. Like I trust them to handle their shit. I trust that they've watched me to know my line, to know where I'm going to go. All I need to do is ride my ride. They'll get by me. Absolutely no issues. It doesn't even give me any anxiety anymore. Whereas at first it used to give me heart palpitations. So tell me about what it's like when a rider crashes in front of you. Are you panicking? Are you taking your same line? Are you target fixating at that rider? Like how do you get through that situation when the guy's four or five, six feet in front of you and you just tuck the front? I definitely, uh, um, I, I have a lot of work behind not target fixating from, um, I, I, when I first started riding on the street would target fixate a lot. So I put in a lot of effort to never do that again. So the second I saw him hit the ground, I immediately tore my eyes away from him and looked through my turn and kept to my line as much as possible. Luckily it was, um, a low side and he slid out away from me. It was like before he even turned into three. So he basically just like slid here this way I'm going that way and I never saw him again and we got red flag first lap out <laughs> well, that's what I think a lot of people don't understand is when nine times out of ten when the rider crashes they're going to go to the outside mm -hmm. and if you were never going to go in that line anyway they're irrelevant to you it doesn't matter anymore they're going to go to the outside you take your normal line not changing anything and chances are you're not going to even come close to hitting them. Even if you were, if they were right in front of you, chances are you're not going to touch them because they're just going to keep sliding to the outside. You stay on your line and everything's peachy keen. Now, sometimes like in the whole Marco Simocelli crash, I don't know if you're, if you're familiar with that, yeah. but he was trying to save the crash. That's a super advanced level technique to try to, you tuck the front. Now he's going to save it. In that instance, he did go to the inside of the corner and that's when he was struck by a motorcycle, but that's a, that's a MotoGP level rider. Um, right. And that's extremely unlikely to happen in a Nava session, right? So, yeah. so chances are, and I could not tell you how many riders have crashed two feet, six inches in front of my front tire. And I didn't change my line. I just kind of, like you said, look through the corner, but have your peripherals kind of like monitoring this guy over here as you like, as he fades away into the distance mm -hmm. and just keep on your line. Maybe don't accelerate hard into him, you know, maybe maintain for a moment, let him, let the bike fade away and uh, continue on with what you're doing. Yeah, I think too, it's a big, uh, so now I have that, but um, coming from street riding for so long, I have had people go down in front of me, behind me in group rides on the street and the instance there is, oh, fuck, I need to stop immediately and go help this person. You know, I've had people go down on group rides. I've been um, a blocker for many group rides. I've been the one with the medic kids, that kind of stuff. And so my immediate impulse that I had to like edit out is like, oh, shit, somebody went down, go help them. Like to the point where like my third session in novice, um, some dude was coming around wide, I think, and almost it looked like he almost high sided he like lost the rear and then it gripped again and kind of like jostled him i saw it out of my peripheral and it freaked me out so much coming in the back straight i immediately pitted i immediately went to go find the dude i was like oh my god i saw that are you okay and he was like yes what are you what <laughs> i didn't crash why are you here that was my immediate reaction is like are you okay <laughs> the mama bird in me sure and uh, we got corner marshals out there, track marshals to help the riders mm -hmm. if they fall down. So 
never stop on the racetrack. Even if you have a mechanical issue, we had someone uh, yesterday, unfortunately, stop on the main straightaway because he had a me mechanical. Get oh. off of the racetrack, get into the grass. They're going 100 miles an hour by you. You do not want to be stopped on the main straightaway ever or anywhere on the track. Get off into the into the grass, into the weeds. If you fall, get to the guardrail. Don't worry about your motorcycle. You're in an impact zone. People sometimes target fixate and will aim, you know, missile right at you. So get away from the bike. Don't worry about it. It's just a machine, right? It's not your baby anymore. It's just a, a replaceable part. Yep. Yeah, 100%. I have not... Um... I have not, knock on wood, gone down on a, oh, stop. I set my belt <laughs> off. <laughs> I have not gone down on the racetrack yet, but um, I'm sure it'll happen one day. And I definitely hope that I don't freeze in the moment because I've seen some of, like my girlfriend Paige, she went down and she immediately, just a low side, she rolled, 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 immediately stood up, started sprinting off track, uphill, waving her arms that she was okay. And I was like, well, that's exactly what you're supposed to do. I don't know if I'd remember to do that though. <laughs> yeah. A lot of the times, like I remember I crashed once at Gingerman. I think that might've been my first racetrack crash. Um, coming down the hill before you go up the back straightaway. I went in way too hot and I was like, yep, I'm, I'm not gonna make the corner. I'll just stand the bike up. I was fine. And then I realized I'm going way too fast now. And uh, the, the, the runoff area was kind of up and down and all around. It wasn't, yeah. it wasn't flat yeah. at all. It was like divoted and uh, still going downhill. So I feel like I'm picking up speed and I end up losing the rear in the grass going too fast. So trying to use, use the rear brake and locked up. And uh, I went tumbling and I guess the corner worker was like, oh, that didn't look like a good one. And he's like, are you okay? Are you okay? I'm like, yep, just, just thumbs up. You know, so I got to give him. But he's like, man, I didn't think you're going to get up from that one that quickly. And uh, one thing that they even said in the novice classroom, <laughs> I thought it was hilarious, but it's so true, especially in the rain. But if you crash, when you crash at the racetrack, wait a couple seconds and then try to get up because you think you're stopped. You might still be moving at like 30 miles an hour. You try to get up, you're going to start tumbling again. <laughs> I've done yeah. that because uh, one time at Pittsburgh, I crashed in the rain and uh, you slide for what feels like several football fields, depending on how fast you're going. And in the rain, you got a less friction coefficient. You slide even farther. And uh, it must have been a couple hundred yards. No joke. And I, I get the, I think I stopped, go to stand up, and I tumble all over again. So uh, you feel like an idiot a little bit. <laughs> yep. Yep. I, uh, yeah, I'm a huge proponent of uh, the airbag systems, too. Um, when my partner went down, it was in the um, back sweeper at Grattan vicious i had no idea about those bumps back there and that they would load and unload your suspension i don't think i was going fast enough to even feel them i'm probably still not at that pace where they're going to affect my suspension but they are there i walked the track and saw them but it was one of those that i think he just was on the gas a little bit too hard when the suspension unloaded it gripped him and sent him off the bike um thank god he got separated from the bike and that airbag was on he must have been going 900 miles an hour through that back sweeper and um a bruise on his bicep that's it that's it the bike however ghost rode 60 yards into the guardrail <laughs> that's where the total comes in but it it uh it lines up with what they all say that the bike doesn't like us on it it doesn't yeah. like our input <laughs> it'll it's it'll the, go for forever without us <laughs> it's usually the nut behind the handlebars that's screwing everything up yep usually <laughs>
For sure. So uh, anything on your mind you wanted to talk about today? Um, I think I have, I think I talked about everything that I wanted to talk about. Um, anything else that you wanted to cover? Oh, I mean, uh, so I'm just waiting on my final say-so for this California Superbike School. Uh, see if I got the job. That'll be a, a game changer for me. That'll be, I think they do 11 tracks throughout the country. It'll be 90 days of on-track riding and coaching. Um, see if I can name all the different tracks, but they go out to the Ridge in Washington. They go to a couple of different tracks in California. Then they go to Willow, the streets of Willow Springs, which is a super famous track. Um, they go to Las Vegas, Las Vegas Speedway. They do Coda, Circuit of the Americas down in Texas. Um, they'll be doing New Jersey. I think they're there today, New Jersey. Um, they will be going, I did the Virginia International Raceway there. They do Pittsburgh. They were there a couple of days ago. Um, what else? Maybe NOLA, New Orleans. I think so I already- do you, guys all, do you guys all travel together or, cause there's, there's a bunch of coaches that go to all these yeah. different events, right? Yeah, so I think they have, uh, well, they have two big semi-trucks that okay. transport all their BMW S1000 RRs, the uh, 2022 beautiful uh, bikes. They have the black version and the white. The whites are for the students. The black version, I think the coaches use, but they're identical motorcycles. And uh, I think a lot of them get rental cars or, or uh, fly to different events. I'm not sure the whole structure yet. Um, I'm still learning all the ins and outs of it, but um, I just drove down there. I You can actually rent a BMW from them, so you don't even have to have your own motorcycle. They have oh, leathers nice. and helmets and all that too. So uh, I didn't want to do my coaching evaluation on a brand new motorcycle I've never ridden before. Right. So that's really why I borrowed this uh, Kawasaki ZX6R from my buddy in the first place to get back up to speed at Grattan and then to do the VAR evaluation. So I wanted to be on a similar machine that I'm used to, not add 80, 80 horsepower and they'll go get evaluated for the first time on that bike. So mm -hmm. I was really happy that I took that bike down there. Um, but it would also be cool to ride those BMWs. I've never been on a 1000, so I'm sure it'll be a, a unique experience. And uh, all that power, it's going to be hard to just keep the front wheel down, I think. Yeah, I've never been on a 1000, and uh, I don't think that I want to <laughs> at this point, at least. <laughs> yeah, I've always said to myself, man, I don't need to be on a 1000. I don't need to upgrade until I win a world championship. I mean, I'm not really fighting for a world championship right now, but that's the idea. It's like I haven't mastered this one before. Why would I move up to the next level? Right. Yeah. And that's why sometimes it's so nice to get people actually started on 400s because a lot of people move up from a 400 thinking that they've topped the bike out. Really, you've topped out your abilities as a rider. The bike has a lot more that it could give you. You're just not riding it to its full potential, which I 100% am not riding mine to its full potential at all. I was, when oh. I first got the thing, um, it had a lot more, it was actually dyno tuned um, and it had the casually that my previous CX-6R did not. And so it actually had way more power. I was running it in low power mode, 80% for the first couple of times I rode it. So I was like, this is a lot. <laughs> yeah. And there's nothing wrong with that. You know, I would even recommend if it's a low grip environment or if it's uh, raining or bad conditions to run a gear taller everywhere. Just oh, yeah. because it gives you less torque. I, I, uh, the reason I moved up from novice to intermediate uh, back in 2011 was because I was at Gingerman and it was a torrential downpour. I mean, everything was soaked between sessions. We would just sit in our cars because there was like, we couldn't be outside anymore. 
And yeah. so uh, it was just me as an as a complete fresh novice, uh, my third track day maybe, and two other coaches. Nobody else was even wanted to ride. Oh, I bet they loved you. <laughs> One coach crashed, and the oh, other no. coach. Yeah, that's how bad it was. One coach crashed, and the other coach stayed out there and was like going putzing around with me. Now, I will not say I was going fast at all, but right. I was out there and I stayed on the bike and that's all I was trying to accomplish. And yeah. uh, to be, and I did not have rain tires. I had DOTs on. Um, yeah. And it was getting really nasty out there, but they bumped me up because I, they're like, if you can ride in this, you do not belong to be a novice anymore. So they bumped me up to intermediate for the next day. And that was, uh, that was the start of my confidence. But I realized I was making a mistake I, I was shifting. I was a gear taller the whole time. And that's probably why I didn't crash because I was just had less torque. I was less power. I was just kind of, you know, coasting around. I wasn't using too much brakes, but uh, it, it made what me like, oh. say that one more time. What gear were you running? What gear? Yeah. Um, I was probably third, fourth gear most of the time or okay. maybe yeah. fifth on the straightaway. Uh, but I thought I was in second, third gear. You know, right, I thought yeah. you're lower. So I was mistaken. I came back into the pits. I'm like, why can't I find neutral? Oh, I was a gear taller the whole time. That's when I found mm -hmm. out. I came back into the pits and I, I couldn't find neutral. Um, so I realized I was a gear taller and that's, that's beneficial for, for poor conditions. Yeah. It's also just beneficial for taking one thing out of like, I run Grattan a lot of the time in like only second and sometimes third gear because it just takes a lot of it out and it forces you to pay attention to, are you feeling your first 5%? Okay. Roll, 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 roll until it's literally time to break. I had to eliminate recently a lot of dead time. I would roll off the throttle and there'd be like a solid couple seconds of dead time of coasting and deselling before I went to grab the brake. And now I'm trying to push it to like fully accelerating all the way until it's time to grab the brake. And are you grabbing the first 5%? Like that type of minutia that you, it takes a lot to think about while you're riding. Taking the gearing out has been helpful for me, at least. Yeah, and even uh, top-level guys like Ben Spees, you know, Elbows, Mr. Elbows, he would go around a track when he's learning a track for the first time and do a fourth gear, fourth gear drill. The top-level guys do these drills when they go to a new track for a reason because you want to set your corner speed. You want to get the good entry speed for the corners, find your, your turn-in points, find your apex, your pre-apex, your exits before you start adding all these things. And when he would do it at pace, he was only four seconds off or so per lap without even using the brakes, but staying in fourth gear the whole time. So like, it's possible to be really fast and just stay in one gear. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. I mean, like Ken Hill always says, if there was a better way to do it, the pros would be doing it differently. So we do it this way. <laughs> yeah. I, I always tell my students, like, just emulate the pros. Look at what the pros are doing. You know, put your body position, in this position, that's what I was always trying to do. I was trying to look like Mark Marquez, you know. Uh, mm -hmm. One For one, it looks badass. For two, he's doing it for a, a specific reason. Like, um, I might not know all the ways or all the details or why he's doing something, but I can see that it works, and I'm going to try to copy that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And uh, you might not be able to drag your shoulder like a Jorge Martin character. We Our, our bikes don't have the physical capabilities of doing that. You know, they're their front forks are more than our houses cost, you know, um, their bikes are $2 million. We might not be able to drag our shoulders on the ground, but actually we can probably drag our elbows on the ground. We can get that much performance out of the tire and get that low to the ground to do it. It's possible. My, Your bike's capable friend, of doing that. Yeah. My friend, uh, 
Justin, he literally was in novice uh, beginning of last season and is now in advance getting ready to race next year and dragging elbow around Gingerman. It's insane to see the progress. It's definitely possible. Yeah, and he's still on top of the bike dragging his elbow. He's not crashing. Yeah, no, he's <laughs> doing it on purpose. Hasn't crashed. <laughs> and people always ask, doesn't it hurt your knee when you drag your knee on the ground? Doesn't it hurt your elbow? Well, no, not really. Actually, I have one back here. Here's a, here's an old puck, or here's actually a newer puck. I got a couple of them. So I like to run the rain pucks. See how thick that is? Yeah. So if you have your knee closer to the tank, uh, it gives you a good idea. You know, you can start to put your knee down, pick it back up, and you know where the ground is. You don't have to have it dragging the whole time. But they're really hard like a really hard plastic. Some of them are being made out of wood now, like a, like a pressure treated or heat treated wood. Can you um, it's a rain puck? Yeah, the rain pucks are just really uh, much thicker than the standard pucks. What's the point of making a puck for the rain though? So it, the compound is the exact same, but they're just thicker so that um, you would essentially have less lean angle so that you'd have okay. to, be, um, to be higher up on your tire tread. So that it just gotcha. gets you in that mindset. But I like to have my knees closer to the tank anyways. Um, so it, it reminds me to pick up my knees more. Um, right, right. And then a puck like this, that's totally worn out. There's nothing left to it. You yeah. know, you can, it's like that's time to be replaced. <laughs> if you leave it too long, it'll rip off all the Velcro on your knee. You don't want to ruin the Velcro. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah, a little show and tell there. <laughs> But uh, yeah, just hanging out, shooting the shit, see what's going on. That's about an hour and a half already, actually. Um, oh, shit. So where can people find you online? Where are you out there in the internet? Um, I'm at wild underscore wahine underscore on uh, Instagram. Good luck figuring out how to spell that. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure you can link it. Yeah. Um, everybody sees it on the back of my suit and they go, wild wahine? Wow. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> wild uh, Yeah, wild Bahine. It's essentially it's it's pigeon um from what you for girl. That's all okay. it is. <laughs> um uh and then I'm on TikTok with the same username. Um that's pretty much all the socials that I do. Uh I'll post a bunch of fundraisers and stuff that I am looking to help out. So very good. So if you're looking to help out with uh, human rights and re reproductive rights, look out to uh, Sophia Oberlander, Wild Wahine on uh, social media, and I'll be sure to get this posted and edited. I have a couple I got to still get to before yours, but it'll be probably a couple weeks. Okay. Sounds good. Sweet. Thanks for talking to me. And I'll see you at the racetrack um, a couple weeks from now. All right. See ya. All right, Bye. Bye.